Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we continue and begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to let you know a bit of what's coming up in the Southview community for the next little bit. First off, our annual Lent project has officially launched. And so once again, we're partnering with Food for the Hungry in continuing to build up Sasiga in Ethiopia. And we've been journeying with this community for about seven years. And this year, we're raising money in three different areas that kind of rhyme so that we can all remember them. Those areas are bees, beans, and latrines. So for more information on how those areas will help Sasiga and for the opportunity to give, visit our Lent page on the website, southviewchurch.com. Secondly, coming up on April 6th, we have another Discipleship Pathway event at the church, and the topic will be on communion, that is, coming to the Lord's table. So what does that mean, and why is it important? This event is for all ages, and we hope to see you there. And the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. You can find a link to the viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. And if you're new with us here in this digital podcast space, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook. But now, today, no matter how you're joining with us, may our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Hello, friends. So glad we can be joined together uh, in this time of worship. And the high point, the culmination of our time together is going to be the meal of communion that we come to after we look at God's word. And today we're continuing in our Lenten teaching series that we've called the Final 24, in which we are looking at some of the final words and events in Jesus' life in those last 24 hours before he gave up his life on the cross. And we began this teaching series with the Last Supper, at which Jesus really reformed the Passover meal into the meal of communion that we now receive. And then last week, Brett and Sam admirably tag-teamed, and they did a great job of it, as we looked at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so here's the setting for our passage today. And Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, who was a Jewish high priest at that time, and he's questioned there. And then he's taken from Caiaphas's place to the headquarters of Pontius Pilate, who is a Roman governor in Jerusalem. Now first, Pilate argues with the mobs about why Jesus was even being arrested. But then Pilate goes inside his headquarters to have a private conversation with Jesus. So let's read their historic conversation. It's in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 18, if you want to turn there with me. And as we hear, remember, friends, this is a word of God. And this is what we read. Let's pick it up in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, 
Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So why all these questions about Jesus as king and his kingdom? I mean, what was and what is the significance of Jesus' kingship and what his kingdom is about? We're going to be looking at those questions over these next two weeks in this series together. But first, let me give you some more background to this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Because understand, in Jesus' day, the people of Israel, they were longing for this new leader, a deliverer from God, who God had promised would come to them. And he would be called the Messiah. And Israel, again, they'd been living under oppression for centuries. And they knew that what they were living in under this oppressive Roman rule here did not look like the kingdom that Israel's prophets had promised to them. But they did know that their Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, described the one who was to come, this Messiah. And by Jesus' day, there were very developed ideas about who this Messiah would be and what he would look like and what he would do. And really, the main expectations or points of agreement about the Messiah were this. For one, he would be a new king. He'd be a new king. You know, in Hebrew, the term Messiah, it literally means one smeared or anointed with oil. So Messiah literally meant anointed one. And that term anointed one almost always referred to a king. So the Jews expected the Messiah or this promised one to come would be a new king. But they never expected that the Messiah would be God. I mean, now today, as we read our New Testament, we understand that from Scripture. But it's helpful to remember that that was not what Israel expected at all. They were not expecting God to show up in the flesh. So a natural question for the people of Israel then was, okay, so how will we know when someone who claims to be the Messiah actually is who he claims to be? How will we recognize the Messiah, the new king? And to answer that, they in part looked to King David. And they knew that when David was anointed king, when Samuel poured oil over David, the first thing that David then did was to defeat the Philistines in battle. And then the last thing David did was to draw plans for the temple in Jerusalem. So that's why one of the main titles for the Messiah, this coming king, was the son of David. Because they understood the Messiah would be a descendant of David, the son of David, 
And he would also do what his ancestor David did. So for one, Israel expected that the Messiah would be a new king. That for certain. But the Jewish people also believed there'd be two other priorities for the Messiah. He, like David, would conquer Israel's enemies in battles. And then thirdly, he, like David and Solomon, would restore glory to the temple and to the people of Israel. Okay. So when Jesus started his public ministry at the age of 30, he started bringing this very different picture of God's kingdom from what people expected of the Messiah. I mean, Jesus kind of seemed Messiah-like with his miracles, his authoritative teaching. But much of what he said and did, it just didn't fit with Israel's messianic kingly expectations. Because for one, Jesus spoke of a kingdom that was for all people, not just for the Jews. A kingdom, really, that offered life and power and the love of God available right now to all including you and me. And Jesus didn't act like people expected the Messiah, the Christ, was going to act. Something was kind of just off a bit. I mean, for example, at Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist, Jesus is baptized in water, which, again, is symbolic, even as we do it here, of one being anointed, drenched by the Holy Spirit. And how does John then announce Jesus' arrival at that baptism? Does John say, behold the Messiah, who will defeat the Romans and rebuild the temple and bring glory to Israel? No. John looks at Jesus and he says this as it's recorded in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, again, there were many people in Jesus' day who were claiming to be the Messiah. So do you know how many people were claiming to be the Lamb of God? None. Why not? Well, what happens to the Lamb of God? I mean, each year during the Jewish Passover, every family, they would choose a lamb to be sacrificed. And, and that sacrifice, it was a symbolic declaration of God that they'd failed, that they'd sinned against God, that they were in need of forgiveness, and that there was a judgment for their sins. And the lamb then took the judgment, paid the penalty for their sins. Okay, so keep all of that in mind as we reflect on this a bit. So after three years of ministering and teaching, when the time had come for Jesus really to complete his work, it was a Sunday before the Passover feast. So this was the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And understand, it was already a very important day in the Jewish celebration of Passover. Because the Sunday before Passover, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, it was choose the lamb day. What was that? Well, this was a pattern that began during the first Passover when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And then that pattern continued on, was followed for centuries after that. 
And, and this is how the pattern is described in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 12, in verse 3, it says this. Tell all the congregations of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. Now, again, these lambs, they were to be without defect, the very best that they had. And the lamb was to die then on the following Friday. Its life was to be given on the following Friday as a sacrifice. Okay, so it's Sunday now, and it is on Choose the Lamb Day that Jesus then comes riding into Jerusalem. Now, understand this. Jerusalem, it just would have been packed with people. More than twice the number of people normally in Jerusalem would have been there because people came from all the surrounding regions to Jerusalem for Passover. And the historians estimate that there would have been somewhere between an additional 300,000 to 1 million people packed in Jerusalem for Passover. And ancient Jerusalem wasn't big at all. And as we've looked at recently, Passover was a time when the Jews then remember how they'd been in bondage in Egypt and then how God delivered them through a man called Moses. And God then gave them freedom. So then in the following centuries, when they celebrated Passover, they longed and prayed for God to do it again, to bring another deliverer a Messiah, one like Moses. So understand this. If you got the scene, Passover was a very dangerous time for the Messiah to come to Israel and to come into Jerusalem, rather. Because during Passover, Jerusalem was a time bomb. You can kind of picture how things unfold in the Middle East even today. And it was a time bomb then because Passover was the single most likely time when someone who wanted to be the Messiah would try to start a revolution because it was such a significant symbolic time. And because of that, then, the Roman authorities, they would actually bring in added battalions of soldiers into Jerusalem just to strengthen security during Passover. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem in the middle of all of that. And then we come to this description in the Gospel of Luke. This is in Luke, in chapter 19, verse 29. And it says, Jesus sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Okay, so Jesus comes riding into Passover, into Jerusalem on a colt, on a young donkey. And understand, that had profound significance also. Because there is a prophecy in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And again, this would have been written around 600 BC. So these words were written about 600 years before Jesus was even born. And the prophet says this in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your Messiah, is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in the verse just before that, the prophet says this in verse 8. No oppressor 
shall again march over my people. Now the Jews in Jerusalem, they all knew this book of Zechariah. They knew this prophecy. And so they all knew exactly what Jesus was doing. I mean, it was Choose the Lamb Sunday. And Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem at Passover on a colt. And that's why when the people saw this, the atmosphere, it just shifted significantly. Back in Luke 19, verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Well, centuries earlier, there was a new king. His name was Jehu. And when Jehu came as a new king of the people of Israel, and he was a king that the prophet Elijah had spoken of, foretold. Look at how the people welcomed him. This is in 2 Kings, describes it. In 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, we read this. Every man of them took his garment and put it under him and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Okay, so that's how the people welcomed their new king. Then we flip back to Luke 19 and this scene that Luke 19, 37 describes. The whole multitude of his disciples began then to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. I mean, really, Jesus and disciples, they were coming into Jerusalem fairly quietly, we could rightly assume, because they knew that this was a dangerous time. I mean, it was Passover. But the one who might be the Messiah then comes riding to Jerusalem on a colt. And of all of a sudden, the crowds can't contain themselves anymore. So they start waving branches. And what kind of branches did people wave before Jesus? It was palm branches. So why palm branches? Well, they had palm trees there. Is that it? Well, it's part of the reason, but not the main one. That's not the deepest reason. Because 150 years before the birth of Jesus, Israel had been oppressed by the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucid Empire, they were kind of an extension of the Greeks. And so the Seleucids, they took over the temple in Jerusalem, and they then dedicated that temple to the Olympian god Zeus. Now here's a picture of the temple. Try to picture this. So the Jewish people were no longer allowed to offer lambs or the prescribed sacrifices at the temple altar. But instead, these foreigners sacrificed pigs to the Greek god Zeus on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem, which was just an unbelievable deep atrocity for the Jews. I mean, it's hard to overestimate the abomination of those acts for Jews. But as all that was happening, there was a Jewish leader who rose up, not related to David, not claiming to be the Messiah, but his name was Judas Maccabeus. And he then led a rebellion against this occupying Seleucid Empire. And, and some of you may have heard of the Maccabean Revolt. I mean, that Jewish victory under Judas Maccabeus is what is remembered and celebrated by our Jewish friends at Hanukkah. And Judas Maccabeus's revolt left Israel for a brief time relatively free. And the symbol of Judas's revolt was, want to guess? 
palm branches. That's what his followers would wave in Jerusalem. And then for a while then, as a result of the revolution, Israel could then mint their own money, their own coins. So what did they put at the center of their coins? Here's a picture one. They put the image of a palm branch on their money. Okay, so as Jesus then enters Jerusalem and the Romans are watching these crowds waving palm branches around, they knew that was a very political act. I mean, it really was a cry for revolution. And what does the crowd say as they lay down their palm branches before Jesus? Let's go back to John. In John 12, 13, it says this. So they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet Jesus, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So the crowds began to shout, Hosanna, or as we say it, Hosanna. Now, the thing is, People today tend to think that Hosanna is kind of a, just a general word that means blessed or praise or honor to you. It was not. In fact, it wasn't primarily a religious term at that time. It was a political term. And it was really a word comprised of two other Hebrew words. One of those words being Yeshaw, which means save us, deliver us, help us. Yeshaw. And then the Hebrew word na, which means now. We plead, we beseech you. There's this sense of urgency with it. So understand, so Hosanna meant Messiah, save us now. Son of David, deliver us. In other words, they were saying to Jesus, Jesus, free us from the Romans and make it happen now. Hosanna. So the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, it really was a political demonstration that was getting out of control. And the Roman soldiers, they're watching all this. And you just try to imagine that scene. I mean, these crowds are singing, shouting, dancing. They are cheering for Jesus. But only because they think Jesus is going to give them what they want. I mean, if they knew what was really going to happen, they would completely change their tune. And that is exactly what happened. I mean, it was Palm Sunday. It was Choose the Lamb Sunday. And God was saying, I have chosen a lamb for you. And he's without defect. He'll sacrifice his life on the cross so that your sin and guilt can be washed away forever. But that, that was completely opposite from the kind of Messiah that the people wanted. I mean, Jesus makes his triumphal entry, and the crowds, again, they're all thinking, okay, finally now it's going to happen. Now finally these Romans are going to get what they deserve. All of our expectations, our dreams, our agendas are going to be fulfilled. And that, it's why Jesus' heart became so heavy and why he did what he did next as he entered Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41 describes it. And it says, and when Jesus knew, drew near and saw the city, as he saw the city going crazy, 
people laying down their coats, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus wept over it. He wept over the city. I mean, you try to imagine what was going on in the people's minds during this. I mean, they see the Messiah, the new king, coming on in a cult. But then he starts weeping. And then he says this, Luke 19, 42. And Jesus said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, now you are all blind. Okay, so I wonder, so what was the reaction to Jesus' words and actions here? Look down in verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Jesus. That was the reaction. I mean, it was choose the lamb Sunday. But they didn't want the lamb that God had chosen. I mean, we don't want a lamb. We want a warrior. We want our expectations filled. We want a Lord who fulfills our dreams. Because the reality is this. Our real problem is that even today, we all want to be our own little Messiah. We really all want to be king over our own lives. So perhaps a starting point for everyone is, is simply this. Okay, let's make this declaration out loud. Read this with me, would you? I am not the Messiah. Just say it out loud one more time with me. I am not the Messiah. Jesus is our Messiah. He's the king we've been waiting for. I mean, the people thought a lamb, a cross, I mean, no one ever thought the Messiah, the warrior king, would come as a lamb of God to be killed. Nobody thought that. I mean, what kind of kingdom is that? Friends, it is a transformed kingdom. Because Jesus brings a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom founded on trusting him, following him, serving him. So the question is, even for us today, do we want that kind of kingdom? Really? I mean, because here's the issue. I mean, like the Jews, we all have our own expectations and agendas. But the way that the Messiah will bring the kingdom to earth is not by our agendas. It's not going to be by our conquest or power or manipulation or violence or anger, but through love and sacrifice to the way of the cross. It's a different kingdom. Now, I was reading this week again about followers of Jesus during third century Europe when the Cyprian plague swept through European cities. And as a result of that, the wealthy, including doctors, escaped to their country estates, really abandoning the poor to their fate with the plague. But it was followers of Jesus, it was a church who, believing each human is made in God's image, risked their own lives to stay in the city and care for the sick. And many then succumbed to the plague themselves. But as a result of that sacrificial kingdom act, the church flourished on the witness of their sacrifice. 
In fact, historians tell us, for example, that women flooded to Christ because Christ and the church gave them the dignity and respect due children of God, something their culture completely denied them. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, we are part of a transformed kingdom. So we are therefore to live and serve others differently because our king, he is a different kind of king. So will you say yes to, will you submit to that king and that kingdom? And if your heart is to say yes to that, then I invite you to come now as we move to this countercultural kingdom of God meal of communion. And we come with men and women of faith, breaking bread, remember how Jesus was broken for us, and taking the cup, remembering the extent of his love. And so in this meal, by God's grace, through his spirit, he wants to feed us. And so, Father, I would pray in all of our gathering places, would you cause bread and cup to be spiritual food for us? Bring your encouragement, your hope, even your wisdom as we come now to this table. In Jesus' name, amen. So I invite you, friends, to take the bread that you have there with you, and would you just hold it for a moment? And I invite you to receive from Christ the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And then with the cup, if you take the cup before you and hold it, let's be still in God's presence. And the wonder is, the blood of Christ was poured out for you. I invite you to drink and receive from him. Amen. And will you pray with me, friends? And, oh, our gracious Father, would you bless your church? You have blessed us incredibly through Christ. But would you also cause your spirit to flow richly through us and among us? Would you cause us to be expressed by us through your spirit in our workplaces, our schools, our homes, and our city, even this week? We pray this so that our King would be known and glorified. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. So great to be able to join with you, friends. And do hope you can join with us next weekend as we continue in this series and look even more deeply at the wonder of Jesus, our King. And as you walk into whatever this week will hold for you, now may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he lift his countenance on you this week and give you his incredible peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.